And I'm going to ask you to find a single verse in the Bible in the only book of the Bible that actually contains both elders and deacons in its introduction. Which book is that? Take your Bibles and locate the book of Philippians. Chapter 1, verse 1. It's the only book of the Bible in which both elders and deacons are mentioned together in the introduction. And I want us to glean a few things from this opening verse as a way to help us understand what we're going to lay out for you today in regards to some future elements for First Family Church. So let's begin by, first of all, understanding this singular verse in Philippians. By the way, Philippians is a a prison epistle, meaning it was written from prison by Paul. He was in chains. There are four books of the New Testament like that, Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians, and I think Philemon. This was the last of the prison epistles, and we think it was written around the early 60s AD, probably 62, 63. The church it was written to, the church at Philippi, was planted about 10 years prior to that. It was one of the first churches, if not the first church in the European area. And church planting is not a new word for our assembly here. You're aware of what that is and, and how we go about it. And the same thing was here. In this case, there were some folks down by the river. They were praying and God brought those who were appointed to salvation and they began to meet. And that collection of disciples became a local gathering in that city called the church at Philippi. So it appears that Paul, of course, had a hand in planting this, was there for a bit. He left and then he wrote this letter back to them. And I think the reason he wrote it is going to be signified to us in the very beginning verse. And I want to take a few minutes and kind of explain this to you. I think it's very intriguing. So notice this opening verse with me. Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, in which Paul would write, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints, circle that word, to all the saints in Christ, there's your primary location, right, church? Everybody said, amen. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, there's your secondary location. So to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Or you could say with the bishops and deacons. You could say with the elders and deacons. The word overseers is the word episkopos. It means to oversee, to, uh, to preside over. The word deacon here is simply a word that means servant. In case you didn't know this, we get our English word deacon from the exact letters of the Greek alphabet. If you were to say the word deacon in Greek, you would say it like this, deacon. Well, actually, you'd put a nominative case on it, diakonos. But it's just those letters in English. Whereas the word servant in verse 1, the beginning of verse 1, where it says Paul and Timothy are servants, that's the word for bond slave. It's a different word. So Paul is actually identifying specifically and differentiating a separate group of men who are servants. They're deacons in the church. They're with the elders of the church. And together they're with the saints in the church. I like to say it like this. You have in this singular verse the, the full picture of the church's polity. Polity means a governance structure, how it's organized. And in this verse, introducing Philippians, you have saints, shepherds, and servants. It's not the only church in the New Testament with this policy, but it is the only book of the Bible that introduces itself 
by showing this church's full polity in play. They're all together. They're there. And this is a, it's a beautiful thing to see. I especially love the word with because he's, he's showing that it's not a group over there doing their thing and it's not a group over here doing their own thing. It's not this group over here. And so you just try to make this all fit. He's saying we are with each other. We are together. The sense of unity is very strong. Now, I want to answer a question for you. Why does Paul mention all three in this opening verse? And by the way, to these three, uh, we'll call them groups that comprise the church. He does say grace to you and peace from God our Father and, and the Lord Jesus Christ. He extends to them unmerited favor and unexplainable calm. We mentioned that earlier. So this is what Paul is extending, this salutation. Why does he, in this book only, why does he introduce this letter by mentioning all three of these, uh, we'll call them offices. Now, I don't think membership's an office, but you kinda, can you give me some room there? You kind of know what I'm saying, right? All three of these distinctive groups. Why does he do that in this book and in this book only? Well, you may can speculate several reasons. Here's what I think is the strongest reason, and I'll base it on what I think the threads of the book will show us. I think Paul is pointing towards and indicating some type of officialness. He's like calling all the leaders and all the followers together in one way, one phrase, saying, I need everyone to have ears to hear this. He may be calling the leaders out specifically to say, guys, what you're going to read in the next few paragraphs, I need you to lean into and continue to, to proclaim to the church. I need your support in this, perhaps. But I think the reason he mentions all three is this sense of indicating officialness. It's much like when you hear someone give a speech at a, at a gathering. Like when Brianna graduated from high school, she was one of the speakers. And she was assigned, I think, the topic of service. And so before she started her speech there at Knapp Auditorium, she said, fellow classmates, fellow graduates, ladies and gentlemen, and then she mentioned administration and the staff. Why does she call all those groups out? It's to, to say, hey, here's an official word for all of you on behalf of all of us. Does that make sense? That's kind of the, maybe a good analogy. Paul here is, I think, bringing some officialness that he wants the leaders to hear and get behind and the church to hear and get behind. Now, what would be the two things or the three things or the one thing or the six things? What, what's Paul aiming at with this official kind of introduction? Well, as you read the book, you're going to find two real threads. You're going to find the thread of unity and the thread of mission. Let me show you these two behind me, okay? I'm going to do this very briefly. When it comes to unity, you're going to find about, oh, at least three or four places in which Paul points to being of the same mind, being in the, of the same spirit. You notice this in chapter 1, verse 27. He says, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And then he says, this walk should be one where you're striving together. So again, this idea of, of oneness. Now what he does is he introduces this idea of unity at the beginning. And as he gets to the end of the book, he's actually becoming more and more bold in calling people to unity. In fact, in chapter four, he calls out two ladies because they don't agree with each other. Look with me at these verses, chapter four, uh, about verse two. So he's building this case kind of, uh, weaving this thread of unity. He wants everyone to officially hear, leaders and followers, get behind the idea that we're in unity. He says in verse two of four, he says, so I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. I mean, imagine being in this church and your name is in the Bible, like the name, your name's in this letter. Like that's a call out, isn't it? Like, wow, 
Paul's brave. But you can see how the, this, this theme of unity is escalating. He mentions it briefly in one and kind of hints at it, whispers it, points to it. But he gets to four. He's like, hey, by the way, you two, you need to agree. You need to figure this out. And he says here next to the true companion, help these women. I believe the phrase help these women points to the fact they may need a little assistance in learning how to agree with each other. Now, who were these ladies? He says they labored side by side with him in the gospel. It could very well be that these were unnamed people in Acts 16 who were there. Lydia was there, we know that. Maybe these were two of the ladies who helped plant the church. It was going great. But then, believe it or not, personalities and preferences get into the mix after 10 years. We don't think about that, do we? Of course we do. Every family does. Every relationship does. Every church does. And you have to realize, oh, we've got a little hurdle here. We've got a little bump here. And he's saying, hey, help these ladies figure this out because unity matters. And so Paul is, one of his main threads in this book is unity. I think he's officially saying to the leaders and the saints, be in unity. I would remind you, we don't create unity. We only maintain it. Unity was given to us by God through his son, and we maintain it through the spirit. It's a very Trinitarian concept. What does he say? Maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Christ has broken down the walls of hostility. This is Ephesians, and he's made us one. This is because God sent his son. So God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit are all involved in unity. They've created it, but we have to work hard at it. And can we just all agree with smiles on our faces? Unity is hard work. Could somebody say amen? amen? Yeah. I mean, if you're married, you know that. Now on that, we laugh, right? We're like, yeah, that's the truth, isn't it? So in the church, we have to work at unity. And Paul here officially is saying in the very first verse, elders, deacons, saints, uh, take notice. I need you to be in unity. So he's calling their attention officially. But he's also calling their attention to another thread that runs through this book, and that's the thread of mission. Let me show you four or five other places where, uh, where you see mission. And by the way, many of these are, are really tied together. You'll see the idea of unity. And in the very next phrase or breath, he talks about mission. Look at verse 5 of chapter 1. He calls them partners. Do you see that? I'm not going to read all these verses. Just notice them and maybe take a screenshot of, this, of the screen behind me. He says, you're, you're a partner in the gospel from the first day until now. He means there that they were uh, financial supporters of his ministry. In fact, as you read through the book, you'll find that this is actually an official thank you letter for their consistent generosity towards his ministry and mission. I'll show you that in a minute. So he says, you're, you have a partnership with me. Look at verse 7. You're partakers with me of this grace both in my imprisonment and in defense and confirmation of the gospel. Paul is seeing this church as a real partner with him in his mission and ministry. Though they weren't there currently, he helped plant it, but now it's 10 years later, he's been in prison. He says, guys, I consider you part and parcel to this. We're linked, we're arm in arm because you financially support, you give. I consider you as, as vital to this ministry. Look over at chapter three, verse 17. Look at this interesting word here. He uses the word join. That's a partnership word, isn't it? It's kind of this word of unity as well as a task or a mission in mind. He says, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. He wasn't there at the time, but he's saying, join me. You do it there. I'll do it here. Let's look for those who are following and in unity going after the mission of God. This is most clear in chapter 4. 
Again, each of these themes kind of escalates as he gets to chapter four, but in verse two again, he not only entreats these two women to learn to agree in the Lord and ask for folks to help them, but look what he says about them. They labored side by side with me in the gospel along with other people like Clement who was a fellow worker. Do you see Paul's real, we'll drive here to say there's a mission in front of us and you're part of it. And perhaps the most explicit reference is in chapter four about verse 14 where he talks about their generous contributions. Look at verse 14. He says, it was kind of you to share my trouble. See the word share there? The idea of that you're, you're linking up with this situation. You Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving. So when he left this church and began further ministry, no church partnered except, he says here, except you only. So they were one of the first to jump on board in financial support, probably for the famine in Jerusalem and for those saints, but also for Paul's ministry in general. And he says that they did this once and again. So they were a continuing contributor. And Paul's point is that because of their financial investment, because of their generosity, he says, you're partakers. You're a partner. You're in this with me. This mission of getting the gospel to those who've not heard. So, so do you see these themes just kind of, and we could point a few more out, but here's these themes. Unity, mission. Unity, mission. They just run through the book. This is the nail Paul is hammering. And the first hammer strike is Philippians 1.1. When he says, in an official kind of a announcing way, before I get into the book, I need every ear of every saint, every shepherd, and every servant. Everyone listen. And so he kind of calls them together and he says, you are with each other. And then he begins to lay out a strong case for being in unity and on mission. So we might say it like this in a single sentence. It's just one verse. But how does this verse kind of help us see the rest of the book? We might say it like this in a single sentence. That elders and deacons... The men you saw up here with me earlier, they lead together with the flock of God for the mission of God. I mean, that's what Philippians 1.1 is just kind of introducing. And then as the book unfolds, we see, wow, here's this entire church in its full polity, saints, shepherds, and servants, all being exhorted and encouraged. Do this with one another in unity and be on mission. Leaders, lead with the flock and for the mission. So will you say it with me together? Here's this single sentence that we can kind of put in our pocket and take home today. Elders and deacons lead together with the flock of God for the mission of God. Now with, with that under our feet, our elders want to bring to you 12 initiatives that we think will help us stay focused on the mission of God. And we're asking you boldly this morning to be in unity with that. So you should have picked this up when you came in. It's what we're calling FFC 360. If you don't have one, just slip your hand up. We'll make sure you get one. Uh, Blake will help you out. You might not have one. You'll need one because you'll want to be able to see this while we're talking through it for a bit. Okay, great. Let's make sure we get those to the guys and the girls who need one. As you're making sure you have that, a couple of things about this. We're calling this FFC 360 
for this reason. We're bringing to you 12, we'll call them initiatives, um, that we are asking our church to kind of orient our life around. So it's kind of a holistic view of things and habits or, or uh, pursuits, initiatives that really should characterize us. So that's why we call it 360, kind of a 360 degree view here. You'll notice that the, the view is kind of geared around celebrating, growing, and serving. So every one of these initiatives connects to our strategy. Our strategy has been from day one, and this is a good week for anyone that's new here. You can kind of get a good glimpse into our church and how we go about things and what we believe for the future and how, where we come from. Uh, we have from day one said that our, our strategy is to celebrate the gospel at a weekend service, to grow in community in a small group, and to serve the mission on a ministry team. Now, those are a lot of words, so we kind of shrunk it down to celebrate the gospel, grow in community, and serve the mission. And we shrink that down even more with just three words. What are they, church? Celebrate, grow, and serve. That's how we go after the mission. We believe that every believer should be identified by those habits on a regular basis. They come straight out of Acts chapter 2, in which the early believers in the first church celebrated in a large group fashion. They grew in a small group fashion, and they served the mission by, in ministry. And so every 7, 8, 10, 12, 15 days, these three habits should be surfacing in your life at least. You're celebrating, you're growing, and you're serving. Those are habits that actually form the strategy for what we know is our mission, and that is to develop devoted followers of Jesus Christ. It's just the Great Commission to make disciples of all nations. And so our mission and strategy has not changed. When you see this, don't think, oh, we've got a whole new vision of the church now. No, we don't. And I'm glad we don't. I'm not a fan of that kind of leadership. I think that every two or three years to have a massive new mission, a new vision, a change every time, it's just, um, I'm not a fan of that. I'll leave it at that. I like getting in a lane, God's lane, knowing his mission and saying, let's stay at the task, keep our hands to the plow until we get this job done. Now, there are ways to adjust that mission based on things that happen around us and in our context. Oh, I think you'd agree with that, right? So what you find here, these are really some adjustments to current objectives. You may call them short-term objectives. Maybe you can call them long-term initiatives. Because I don't think you can have 12 missions or visions, by the way. But you can have 12 action points off of something. So these are just 12 initiatives that we're going to really bring over the next four or five years uh, to bear upon your life and our life. We want you to be in unity and on mission. Now, here's a word I've not mentioned yet, and I'm just giving you some background still. I've laid out clearly for you that our, our mission here is, is God's mission to make disciples. We word it like this, developing devoted followers of Christ. Our strategy is to celebrate, grow, and serve. These regular habits that the church is involved in. So we say this at First Family. We exist to develop devoted followers of Jesus Christ who celebrate, grow, and serve for the glory of God. That's our mission, and that's our strategy. But someone could say, well, Todd, what's, what's the vision of the church? Where does that take us one day? If that's working well, we'll become a people ready to reproduce. And that's really the underlying vision of First Family Church. In other words, vision speaks to what you hope to become or a preferred picture of the future. And we want to continue to make tracks towards being a people ready to reproduce. We've seen God do that in our church five, six times lately, uh, the last several years. We're so pleased with that. We can't set the timetable all the time. It's, it's hard work, but together in different ways, we can send people internationally. 
We can plant churches locally. I think ascending culture is, the, is one of the best avenues to avoid a dying culture. See, here's what usually happens in churches. Things get looking full or that they seem like they're enjoyable, they're comfortable, or they seem like they're successful. And everyone starts to enjoy it and their eyes suddenly go to the church and not to what's outside the church. They forget John 4.35. Lift up your eyes and see the fields that are white to harvest. And the minute you forget looking to those outside the church and you only see those inside the church is the day you start dying. The problem is you don't know that you start dying that day. You don't know it for like 15 years later. And you wake up like, hey, what happened to our church? And I want to say it happened 15 years ago when you took your eyes off your mission. Does not mean we can't take care of each other? Does it mean we shouldn't be sensitive? I, th- I agree with all of that. But the end goal of the church isn't the church. The end goal of the church is God's mission to get the gospel to the ends of the earth. And so we are, as your elders, 100% committed to the priority of making disciples who make disciples who make disciples. Are you with me? Yeah, we can make disciples, but once you make a disciple, you can't say, well, great, you're done. See you later. That disciple must say, wow, this has changed my life. Who do I know that doesn't know Christ? And they make a disciple because the truth is, if you're not making disciples who make disciples, you're not making disciples. Ouch. Maybe you're having folks sign a card. Maybe they're saying a prayer. Maybe they're becoming a convert. I don't know. But the New Testament's pattern is we make disciples who make disciples. Those disciples gather in what's called churches. That's why we plant churches. Hope you're hearing our heart on this. These are just initiatives aimed towards that vision, becoming a people ready to reproduce. We know that God will increasingly do that as we develop devoted followers of Christ who celebrate, grow, and serve. These initiatives lean into lean against that wall. Let me walk you through a couple of these initiatives, can I? And just kind of talk to you about it because I can't review all 12 here. Your elders will be in your fireside chats. They'll do that there. They'll answer questions for you. Uh, I want you to have time to process this, to contemplate this. But I do want to mention a few of them. I've kind of given you the the, uh, background of it, uh, maybe how the framework for it. In fact, I just mentioned one more thing to you. Uh, We were going to introduce this in March. We're going to bring this to you and, and have this discussed in the March fireside chats. But something happened in March. You remember what that was? Yeah, I do too. And so seven weeks, we don't get to see you guys. And so we agreed, let's just wait till the fall. It gave us a great opportunity to, to bathe this more in prayer, to tweak some of the wording, to take some things off, put some things on. And the truth is, uh, just a few, maybe three months ago, we met for our quarterly meeting, our elders did, and we just spent a lot of time praying and talking through the bylaw changes and some things. And the last part of that meeting, remember, we asked each other, is God saying anything to us in this mid-COVID time frame as we're starting to come back? What, what would God want us to adjust or tweak? And one of our elders said, uh, in regards to this, he said, you know what? Let's remain committed to being a fully functioning community. It may be that we come back differently. It may be that things have to be tweaked, but we can't settle for a version of church less than the Bible describes. Amen? And I remember thinking, he, he's really saying, the Holy Spirit's saying to him, a fully functioning community. That's FFC. I like the way that sounds, right? And someone else said, yeah, that's First Family Church. That's FFC. And, and the Holy Spirit just knit our hearts that, you know what, our aim is that these 12 initiatives will continue to move us towards being a fully 
functioning community, even in the middle of or, or after the, uh, on the heels of a pandemic. Because every generation has to figure out how will we obey God with a thousand hurdles in front of us. And no one's had it easy. We're not the first. And so we ask ourselves, how then do we navigate the landscape, the culture? How do we do all that and stay true to God and be his people? These 12 initiatives, hopefully, will, will kind of speak to that a bit. Notice um, under uh, the grow, I can't say quadrant because there's not four here. So I'll just call it, a, in the first service, I called it a trident. Uh, but that's not actually a word. I like to make up words, but then someone told me afterwards that the word for three things like this is often sub-assembly, and I hear it's kind of a manufacturing term. So I don't know if that's true. That doesn't really, that works, I guess, sub-assembly, I don't know. Someone said the word prong could work. I'm going to go with trident. So, and I'm just kidding you. Look with me, if you would, where we say that we're going to reinforce the joyful journey of the discipleship pathway especially daily Bible reading. And you may see that and say, man, that just seems so basic. Doesn't everyone know that? Well, here's the problem. Yes, we all know that. But only a, a small percentage of most church members actually read their Bible on a regular basis. We know that the Bible is the source of all growth in the Christian life. It should be the center of all preaching in the church. And so we have been saying this since we started. The discipleship pathway is a few years old. We want to continue to give it visibility, help you assess where you are on it, what's your next step in it. But with all of those things that are on the pathway, there is one habit that affects all of it the most, and that is the singular habit of regular daily Bible reading. Now, you know that from the Scriptures, God says we should desire his word like a baby wants milk. And have you ever seen a baby nurse? It's more than once a day. And man, they just get after it. Are you with me? We'll leave it at that, okay? That's how we should crave the scriptures. And so we know theologically, scripturally, man, the Bible is the source of all growth. But did you know that this is even true statistically? Two studies have been done. And they took a, a group of Christians and they said, of all the habits that you're involved in, let's find out which one contributes the most to your spiritual growth. So they had witnessing, giving, church attendance, prayer, Bible reading, uh, community, that I'm all listed, and they tracked them over a period of years. This was done in the 70s and just recently, in fact, same study. And when they compared all the habits, there was only one habit that, that emerged as mostly significant for the growth in all those Christians. You know which one it was? You know what's what it was, don't you? Daily Bible reading. So the folks of the study, they said, if there's one thing we would encourage the church to make sure they are just emphasizing is this, read the Bible. So, so we are doing that, not because that study said to, we know the Bible says to, but it just brings more credence to this fact that, guys, we're gonna continue to do everything we can to get the Bible in front of you, to get your nose in the book. We're going to make tools available. We're going to encourage you towards this. It's the singular habit that will most affect your spiritual growth. And I suspect right now, those of you who know you're stunted in your growth, who know you're away from the Lord, you're distant, you're straying, you're backslidden, you would say, yep, that's true. I haven't read the Bible in six months. And you're, you're, you're right now in your mind thinking, I'm living proof of that. You feel a distant 
You have even cracked a copy of the scriptures. As your shepherds, with you and our deacons, we want to make sure that we continue to emphasize the Bible as the central source of all our growth, as the guide along the discipleship pathway. Have you looked at another one or two, can we? Um, you know that outreach and evangelism, missions is just in our DNA. Look at the lower left section, would you? It says we're going to enhance deploy, uh, development week with deployment week. And development week is something we've done maybe I think once or twice. It's proven pretty effective. It's kind of a, a newer take on a ministry fair. And helping folks plug into serving opportunities, it went very well. And instead of repeating that twice a year, we thought we would simply continue to do development week once a year, but then enhance that with deployment week, which is really a seven-day period in which we're going to just flood our city with all of us serving in some capacity. How could we impact our city? Maybe it's a metro area. Maybe it's the community you live in. It's a, it's a wide open platform of opportunities and ideas. But get out of these walls and into those lives. So we're going to deploy this army of people at least once a year in a very organized, orchestrated fashion to really make a dent and to shine a light in our city meeting needs. That kind of goes hand in hand with one on the other right, on the right lower Trident, can we say that? In which we're going to establish and launch a consistent outreach presence at DMAC. And when you see that, you may think, Todd, I think there's one already there. Sister Church of Ours, Keystone, has Salt Ministry, Salt Company. It does a great job. You're exactly right. And we're in talks right now. Maybe that uh, initiative is a partnership of some type. We've tried a couple of times to really take a good swing at college ministry, and we've kind of hit foul balls. Is that okay to admit? Uh, but I'm willing to get back in the batter's box. And I want you to as well. Because here, here's what's driving all this. Whether it's with Salt Company or whether it's a different niche, here's what I cannot get past. We've got a college campus with 900 on-campus students a few blocks away. We have to do something. It, it can, can you just hear that okay? I don't know if we've done it well in the past. Uh, We've got to make some adjustments, but how can we sit here with this facility, which in many ways has a lot to offer college kids? G-Y-M, right? And how can we just sit here and think, well, it didn't work a couple of times, let's do something else. So there, there's a lot we're trying to figure out about how to go about it. But man, I am not willing to say, ah, we're done. We're done with DMAC. It's a few blocks away and there are 900 on-campus students, much less all those who drive in. It's the same reason that we hire a full-time youth director and put a lot of emphasis and resources toward youth ministry because we've got a high school campus, one of two, even closer than DMAC. So a church would be foolish not to look outside of its walls to the fields that are white to harvest and say, what can we do to reach that? How can we impact that? What can we do? It kind of goes to the heart of this church. That means we are, we are committed to making sure you're growing and bringing you good meat, helping you eat well and feed on the Bible. Yes, but we cannot be self-focused. We must have our eyes on those outside. We must have our eyes on the harvest and pray for God to raise up laborers. So maybe some of these things will speak to you today. You'll go home, pray about them, think about them. You'll say, hey, where can I plug into that initiative? Over the next four or five years, God will just rally some troops to some of these things. Let me bring one or two more to you, and I've got to wrap this up. 
Uh, you see the one about multiplying creatively and annually by sending planters and international partners. We want to continue to be an environment where multiplication is normal. Uh, we've got three in the pipeline currently. I won't tell you exactly their names right now because sometimes things do change and uh, can be a little weird to have your name announced for a certain thing and then later they feel like you're kind of not doing it anymore. Uh, you know about Parker. He's here. He's on a three-year residency. We have some other folks in the missions pipeline. Man, we are excited that God keeps raising up people that we can then send and really hold the rope well for them. That's our goal. I'd love to see us send someone every year. Just, hey, it's sending time. Who's next? And just know that the pipeline's full. In fact, I said this last week to somebody. I would love a financial crisis in our church because of this factor. We have so many people waiting to go to the fields that we don't have enough money. Todd, you've got to go ask the church for more money. I would love to come to you and beg for those things. Not maybe for other things, maybe for this place here. And there's times we have to update things. That's on here as well. I agree with all that. But wouldn't it be great if we had to just come to you and say, hey, we need $100,000 more. We've got six people ready to go to unreached places. We've got church planters waiting. Let's give. Wouldn't that be awesome? I think it'd be great. I'd love that kind of financial crisis. We just can't have enough generosity. God's been doing some good things in this area, and I pray he'll keep that up. The last thing I'll mention is this one about our family and, uh, well, it's called our family ministries. We want to adapt and further resource aspects of it for enhanced focus and effectiveness. I have been so proud of our children and youth team and our family team as they've had to navigate coming back under COVID and how to do that well. And I mean, you know the, the whole deal with the schools now and the whole thing now in our churches and just, there's a lot there and just leave it at that. And so in light of that, we want to continue to think, what's the best way to minister to our families, our children, our youth, and how can we tweak that and bring more resources if necessary? One of the things that we're doing is we're going to give a great concentration to marriages. You know, we typically have a marriage conference. This next year, it's four intensive marriage weekends. You've got to sign up for them, but I would encourage you, uh, find out those weekends. You can just go to our website, see Pastor Travis, and, and, and find a sitter, and you and your spouse... Take those two days because your marriage, uh, every marriage could use more unity and every marriage could use more mission, God's mission, you know, and how to live on that mission. You see, I have this suspicion, I, I do believe this, that a church with strong marriages really impacts a community. And I'm not diminishing single people. You see, we care about that. We want to reach that. It's not all about trying to divide people. But, but here's the thing, guys. The marriage, and just hear this, okay? Hear this honestly and transparently. The marriage, how a husband loves his wife is the singular picture of how Christ loves the church. There is no other picture mentioned in the Bible. So if you want to reach your community, it seems to me, the math says, let's have husbands loving their wives well. Let's have really good marriages because your neighborhood is probably going to notice that you and your wife get along exceptionally well because most couples probably don't. And they may one day say, you know, how do your, your wife navigate these things? Like 30 years you've been together? Like, man, I mean, those questions come up. And man, what a gospel platform. So we're just 100% in to helping your marriage Go from good to great or from decent to good or maybe from the basement, not so good to decent. I don't know. Whatever you do, don't have shame. Let's say, hey, could we get some help? 
Man, I want, I want to go a long stretch without a single divorce at First Family. I want to see our marriages just growing and thriving because how you are in your physical family is how you will be in your spiritual family usually. If you're always in conflict, if you can't agree on things, if you're always battling for position, if you're leveraging and manipulating, you're going to bring those habits into your spiritual family. And then the mission of God's affected. You're going to be out of unity, out of joint. And what does Paul say in Philippians? He says, I want you to aim for unity and aim for mission. Be in unity on mission. So we want to help with your marriage and your family. Now, let me just lean in here a little more transparently as I wrap this up. I think this primarily falls on men. So let me speak to the men in this room. I think you ought to get behind these initiatives with your family, and especially this one. And men, I think you need to love your wife in an even more sacrificial way. Treasure her. Prize her. Love her like Christ loves the church. Lay down your life for her. Sacrifice. If you want unity in your marriage, love your wife like that. It starts with the men. So I'm appealing to the men in this room. Me and our elders and deacons and the other men in this room. Let's love our families in that way, especially our wife. And watch God build that environment so that it then affects the spiritual family environment. And as we begin to attack some of these things and approach them, as we begin to reach out with more intentionality and other things you see on there, wouldn't it be great to see God continually keep us on mission and in unity? That's FFC 360. You'll hear more about it in your fireside chats. And every bit of that's empowered because it's Christ who purchased his church. He loves us that much that he purchased us and empowered us for the Father's mission. So we're asking you boldly, without apology, be in unity and on mission. We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons or subscribe to our podcast feed. Thanks for listening.